0: God's plan for your life is security, it's assurance, it's salvation that can't be taken away from you, it's justification that can't be taken away from you. God wants to give you a foundation of acceptance and security. God's plan to change your life does not primarily revolve around uncertainty. God doesn't say to us, you know, the way you're going to change your behavior is for me to remind you of all the things you're going to lose unless you change. That's not God's primary way that he changes people's lives. His primary way is to open up the doorway and access to the Holy Spirit of God because Jesus removes the barrier that exists between us and God by dying for us. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and he says, the way you are going to be transformed is through assurance and security. And that's so important. That's God's plan for your life. When we come to Romans chapter 5, Paul is zeroing in on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the assurance that it offers to believers. Last time we met, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and he talked about that we have peace with God by, just, by, uh, by faith alone, that we have access to God's very presence, that we have a standing in God's presence through Jesus Christ that is immovable, unstoppable, that we have the assurance of hope. Not only that, Paul had said, Look, what you're going to get in Christ is that even when suffering comes, even when difficult circumstances come, even when everything is falling apart, in Christ Jesus you have access to the Holy Spirit. So even that can make you stronger. The affliction leads to character, the character leads to hope, and hope leads to the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts. And as we come now to our text this morning in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, Paul is undergirding that assurance and security and telling us how it might work so that as believers we might have security and assurance, be confident that we are truly made right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the primary heart of this passage so that you can see how we can practice and walk in the warmth of security and assurance in Christ. And let's look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, and then I'll kind of talk from there. But listen to what it says. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this introduces a very difficult, complex paragraph, but to make it understandable and really easy, if you would circle one man with a pen, if you have it, or just think about it, one man, that phrase is used eight times in this passage that we're looking at, eight times. And the one man either refers to Adam, as it does here, that Adam brought sin and ruin and death, or in this passage, it refers to the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, in the passage, there's a parenthetical set of remarks between verses 13 and 17, but look at verse 18 where he picks up what he began talking about in verse 12. Look at what it says. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, that's the clue to this paragraph. And the clue is this. You've got two Adams. You've got one Adam who brought sin and death and ruin for us all. But then, praise God, a new Adam came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he reversed the ruin of Adam's work by bringing justification and life for all people. And what Paul is saying is, is that the foundation of our security and assurance with God does not come down to a program, it doesn't come down to behavior modification, it doesn't come down to how good we are, it comes down to who do you belong to. If you belong to the old Adam, then your destiny, an eternal destiny, destiny, is condemnation and death. But if you belong to the new Adam by faith alone, then your eternal destiny and security is absolutely assured for you because of the work of the one man, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? You know, if you think about it, you're like, what are we celebrating during the season of Advent? Well, we're celebrating that God came into the flesh and was born into a cave. And that in coming, he came to die for our sins. We're not celebrating some Hallmark special. Can I get an amen? We're not celebrating some, you know, uh, beautiful kind of, I don't know, all the fluffy stuff that happens at Christmas time or Santa Claus. What we're celebrating is we were trapped in the ruin of the original Adam as human beings. We were absolutely devastated with the insecurity of death and sin and destruction and brokenness and all of those things. And yet Jesus came as a new Adam because our first Adam messed up. A new Adam came and said, I'm going to fix it all. And as we belong to him and as we celebrate our belonging to the work of Jesus Christ, we gain security. I have to tell you that life transformation comes far more from a belonging identity than it does behavior modification. You know, a lot of religion and self-help principles and, and helps to help human beings better themselves is all about modifying your own behavior and forcing yourself and creating all these rules and boxes and all these systems and formulas to change your life. But when we remove that and say, I belong to Jesus Christ and give him our heart, our heart's desires to change as we practice a belonging mentality to Jesus Christ. So in a very real way, listen, what Paul is doing is very pastoral. He's saying to believers, I want you to celebrate and rehearse and confess that you belong to the new Adam, not the old Adam. That you belong to Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us. And you no longer belong to the ruinous results and death that the first Adam brought to us. And this passage breaks down how we can confess our belonging to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to break this up into four points. Now, don't be nervous because according to the first service, I mean, I preached through this thing. It was a short sermon, which means I'm in a really good mood. Amen. And so four points, but I'm going to get through it pretty quick unless I really start having fun. And then who knows what will happen. But listen, here's the deal. Confess your belonging to Jesus Christ in four ways. Number one, confess that you belong to the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. Now, let me repeat verse 12 because Paul outlines how badly we need the new Adam by emphasizing the fall of humanity because of the first Adam. And look at verse 12 again. So important, this verse. He says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have here what's called an elegant chiasm. The top and bottom terms are sin, and the two middle terms are death. That, makes, that means that this verse really emphasizes death and uncertainty and brokenness. And what Paul does is he describes in three stages how humanity fell. How many of you all, you watch 24-hour news 24 hours a day, right? It's constantly. And when you watch the news, you go, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong? Things are going wrong. Well, I got news for you. Things have always been wrong, right? Nothing's new under the sun. And we ask ourselves, what happened? How did humanity jack everything up so badly? Well, Paul describes it to us in three stages. He says the first stage of the fall of humanity is that sin came into the world through one man. He didn't need any help. It just came through one man, sin came through. Adam became a gateway, a vessel by which sin was looking for an opportunity to enter the world. And that's a very interesting idea. Because if you think about what's implied is that sin existed before Adam. It was not originally a part of his nature. He did, Adam didn't make up sin. It wasn't like sin didn't exist, and then Adam said, I'm going to create this thing called sin. No, sin existed before Adam, and it was looking for an opportunity, which brings us to all of these cool, like, philosophical questions like, well, what's the origin of sin? What does the Bible tell us about where sin did originate? And I got bad news for you. The Bible doesn't tell us. That's one of the great mysteries that scripture does not answer, and the only thing we can do is speculate. What we do know is that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we know that Lucifer fell, and with his angels, his fallen angels, they fell from God because of pride, and that happened be- before Adam committed that original sin. So we know that Lucifer and Satan, he was a big reason why sin came to Adam as, a, as an invitation to take and to take the forbidden fruit. But even the sin that Lucifer created in the fallen angels, we have no idea how that could happen. How could a holy God, perfect in holiness and righteousness, create a perfect creation, a perfect garden, a perfect Adam and Eve, and then somewhere, somehow, sin came, even though God is completely sovereign and enter into the world? We have no idea. There's no answers for that. And when a skeptical friend asks you a question like, well, what about the origin of sin? You have to admit, look, it only goes back so far. The only thing we do know, which we can see manifested all around us, is that sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam. And Augustine used to tell his congregation all the time. Augustine used to say to his congregation, you know, to speculate about the origin of sin is kind of like trying to see darkness or trying to hear silence. It's beyond our comprehension. And we trust to the providence of God that he's in control. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He had a plan. It's a part of his plan. And he will be glorified in the end by the overthrow of evil by his son, Jesus Christ. But sin used Adam as a doorway to come into the world. And the reason why you and I are sinners is because Adam introduced sin into our nature. So the first stage of the fall of humanity is that sin came through one man. The second stage of the fall of humanity is that death entered through sin. You know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and death used sin as its gateway to get to us to bring all the kinds of death that we experience. Not only is he saying that death entered through sin like physical death, which, by the way, you see that we live in a world filled with cemeteries, don't we? And we go, why does it have to be like that? That beautiful cemetery with bodies buried all throughout it. Why did that happen? And the reason why that happened is because of original sin. Original sin introduced death, and that's why we live in a world of cemeteries. But not only was physical death introduced through sin, but spiritual death was introduced through sin. That is, we were separated from God because of Adam's sin. The first thing that happened to Adam was he was hiding behind bushes. And in him, we all hid behind the bush with Adam. God said, where are you, Adam? Adam was running from God. Human beings have been running from God every since. Not only physical death and spiritual death, but ultimately also, and the most tragic of all, is eternal death. The idea that human beings are forever separated into hell, and into forever condemnation and judgment is because of sin. And when you and I die, you've never met a mortal human being. Did you know that? You've never met a mortal human being. And what happens to us when we die is we go on and on forever. And we either go on forever in heaven and life with God, or we go on forever in hell and forever separated from God. Sin introduced all of that to the world. Not only did The stage of sin came through one man and death through sin. But the final stage is that sin spread to all people. You see that? So death spread to all men because all sinned. And what this passage is teaching us is that we were there in Adam in that original sin. His sin was our sin. That one trespass. Now watch this. The Bible is literally saying... It's one of the most controversial things. Therefore, you won't hear it in a lot of churches because pastors don't want to say it. But I'll say it. Can I get an amen? Amen. The Bible says that that one sin was more than enough to cast all of us into hell. If no one else would have sinned after that one sin, that one sin was more than enough, you and I would go to hell forever and ever without the redemption of Jesus Christ. If you're born, you're like, I've never broken any of God's laws. I've been a perfect human being. I've gone to church every Sunday. I was raised in a cradle with hymns sung over my cradles. I know every Christmas song. I know every whatever, ritual, candlelight service. Uh, I've seen every pastor's robe. It doesn't matter. Even if you were perfect, which, of course, you and I aren't because we're all jacked up. I won't ask you to say amen after that. Right? We're all really messed up. But even if we weren't, if we were perfect, we would still be condemned forever and ever because we sinned in Adam. His original sin means that, and what Paul means is that the guilt of Adam is imputed to our account. That's what he says in verses 18 and 19 that I read earlier. He says, that one trespass, one, everybody say one. One trespass brought condemnation to us all. concept of original sin is that the guilt of Adam is imputed to our account. And also the pollution of Adam's original sin is spread to us. Through our DNA and our spirits and our soul, we are born running from God. We are born in iniquities and sin. That's what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is not that babies are born innocent and then culture messes them up. What's wrong with the world is that babies are born in this world in and through and with the nature of Adam. We all have an edemic nature. That's why the psalmist says things like this. Psalm 51 and verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth. In iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Psalm 58, again emphasizing the pollution of original sin. Psalm 58 verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. You can read all other kinds of passages. The prophets talked about even our righteous deeds are are like polluted garments. Or Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand the human heart? No one can because we're filled with duplicity and and we're filled with with a, a Jekyll and Hyde kind of nature. And the reason why is because Adam introduced all of that through one sin. And through that representation and that original sin, Adam did it all. You see what Paul's doing. Paul's like, like, I really want you to see how badly you need a new Adam. Like you really need a new Adam. And if you are born into Adam, which everybody is, and you haven't got the new Adam, you really need to change your membership from the old Adam to a new Adam, which is Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, and he begins to emphasize this idea of representation. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, you could circle that word yet, yet death reigned, from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What he's saying is, is a very true point. You and I can't be held accountable by God for a law that was never given to us. And the law of God was not given until Moses. But what he's saying is, is that Adam represented us, that we sinned in Adam, and the proof of that is not our own transgression of the law. The proof of that is that we all die. Everybody dies. That proves that the original sin of of Adam, the guilt and the pollution has definitely spread to all of us. And so through Adam's representation, we all die. Even if you've never transgressed the law of God. Or maybe you were born and you didn't even know what the Bible said or what the Ten Commandments were. You didn't know the difference between right and wrong. It doesn't matter. Everyone dies. That proves that Adam's original sin was imputed are credited to our account. Paul's emphasis of this representation, though, is what is leading him to proclaim the good news. He says in that last phrase, look at the last phrase in verse 14. He says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That Adam is a framework or a type of Jesus Christ. Christ is the anti-type of Adam. That means that God created Adam with Jesus in mind. And that we have a pattern of representation that becomes the framework by which the redemptive work of Jesus Christ has its place. Namely this. If Adam represents you and I in original sin and we say, well, that's not fair. How come I'm being condemned for his one trespass? How come I'm being held accountable for the one thing that he did by taking the forbidden fruit? That doesn't seem fair. And yet we prove when we break the law of God that if we would have been there, we would have made the same decision. Did you know that? Eve would have come to us, we would have done the same thing. And every time we cross that boundary that God gives to you and I. And man, by the way, have you ever noticed that when a rule is given to you, you just want to break that sucker? You know what I'm saying? Everybody look back at that clock. See that big red clock? Look at that big red clock on that wall. See, it says 1144. That was put on that wall about four years ago. I showed up one Sunday, and I got up here to preach, and you know what I said? A big red clock. And I went, hmm, I wonder who put that there. And I wonder why they put that there. And by the fact that, I'm not the most, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I thought, I think somebody wants me to preach shorter, you know what I mean? Like, just to be aware. I'm sure it was a gracious thing, and it was. I'm sure it was a gracious thing, but you know what I was tempted to do, and I've been tempted to do ever since? Every time I look at that red clock, I'm going to go long today. Oh! You see, our edemic nature looks at a rule and says, oh! you're telling me not to touch. I want to touch. You're telling me not to look. I want to look. You're telling me not to do things. I want to cross that line. That sounds adventurous. That sounds really fun because we have an endemic nature. And what that proves is, is that we would have done what Adam did. So him being our representative is really fair, isn't it? Because we would have done the same thing. But by the way, you and I are more, ha- more than happy to look at Jesus and to get, get what we don't deserve. We're more than happy for Jesus to represent us on the cross. We're more than happy for Jesus to die for our sins. We're more than happy to say, man, I'm glad that I'm held accountable for what Jesus has done, not what I've done. That I'm held accountable for what he has achieved, not what I have achieved. You see what Paul's doing when he says that Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. He is saying that just like Adam represented you and I and failed... So now a new Adam comes, and we have a pattern by which we can lay hold of a new Adam and say, he has done what I couldn't do so that I can be made right with God and be secure and assured and never doubt that by faith in Jesus Christ, I am right. And our job is to confess, I belong to a new Adam. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you belong to a new Adam. And when Satan accuses you and says, oh, you're not good enough to feel right with God. Or when circumstances tempt you to think that God doesn't care for you anymore. Or when life comes up against you and you feel like that everything's falling apart. That your whole life is falling apart. Or when you're told you're sick and you're dying and you're wondering, how can I know that I am going to have eternal life? All you have to do is say, I belong to Jesus Christ. He has performed for me the righteousness that I was required to do. Jesus is my new Adam. Is he yours? Isn't that good news? God wants us to have a belonging identity. God wants us to have a belonging mentality. I belong to the new Adam. But not only do I belong to the new Adam, but this new Adam is also the greater Adam. I belong. Let us confess that we belong not only to the new Adam, but the greater Adam. And Paul, in verses 15 through 17, really gets pastoral. I would say that these verses are some of the the most pastoral verses in Romans chapters 1 through 5. Here's what he says. Look at what he says. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more... much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of notes that I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see a couple of phrases that are repeated. The first phrase is, for if. You could circle that. And then it's followed by a much more in verse 15. And then it does the same thing in verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man man? And then circle much more. And what he's doing is he's contrasting. Paul is saying, even though Adam and Christ are similar in terms of a framework of representation, yet there are important differences. There's an, an important series of contrasts that points to the fact that Jesus is much greater in all of his effects than the original Adam. And Paul, even though he's being incredibly theological, and by the way, everybody say complex. complex. This is a very complex passage, very difficult. And yet, in the midst of very complex theology, Paul is being very pastoral. He uses phrases like free, free gift and grace eight times in just those several verses. He wants us to really enjoy the fact that Jesus is the greater Adam that he more than undoes and reverses what the original Adam did. John Calvin said, you know, as powerful as Adam was to ruin us, Jesus Christ is far more powerful to save us from Adam's ruin. And what Paul does is he he tells us about two different contrasts to help us to really celebrate the fact that Jesus is the greater Adam. The first contrast is a contrast of degree. Again, looking at verse 15, he says, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. Have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul's like, think about it. When Adam represented you and I in original sin, he was selfish. He took that fruit because he was being self-serving. He was thinking only of himself. This pattern of sin is what we replicate all the time. When we sin, we're being selfish and self-serving, and we're not thinking about the impact it makes on other people's lives. We're we're not thinking about anything except for our own pleasure, our own desires, our own agenda. We say, I am my own God. I am my own idol. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's what Adam did. And because he was selfish, he brought condemnation to all of us. Adam's one trespass brought this kind of death into our life. And so for God to reverse that and to give us the new Adam, he says much more have the grace of God. Everyone say grace. Grace Grace is the undeserved gift given by the unobligated giver. And God in saving us says, I'm not going to think of myself or my own pleasure or my own safety I'm going to think about others with sacrificial love. I'm going to leave heaven and come down to earth and be born in a cave. I'm going to obey the the, the commands that the first Adam didn't do. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to freely give this grace and this gift of salvation. Jesus Christ's salvation is far greater in degree than the ruin that Adam brought, obviously to highlight the elegant and beautiful and wonderful and gracious gift that we have in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he says that that this grace from this one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Not only did God say, you know what, I'm going to give you my son as a gift. Jesus is the grace of God in his person and his work and being born and dying and defeating death on our behalf and being a new Adam. Not only did God do that, but he wanted to do it. This was his plan all along. He abounded with joy to do this. He zealously pursued the sacrifice. For the joy did Jesus take the cross in our place. It's not like God looked at us and said, oh, geez. Well, they messed up. Adam messed up. I'm going to have to go down there and fix this thing. No, God said, this was my plan all along. I had this plan before, I had this plan in eternity past so that I could glorify my lavish love that's rooted not in our performance, but that is flowing from God's own nature. God proves his own nature of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, proving that Jesus didn't come so that God could finally love us, but that Jesus came because God already did love us. And if that's the case, if that's the kind of grace that the Bible presents to us, then how is it that we could ever be insecure when we believed in Jesus and we belong to him? We can never lose that salvation because salvation's not rooted in my own performance or my own works. It's rooted out of the nature of God's grace and God's love. And he proves that by giving us Jesus. How much greater is this? God's plan for your life is security. God's plan for your life is assurance. And, it's so, and, and, and not only that you have assurance, but that you can enjoy this assurance to such an extent that that enjoyment will itself become a new desire in your heart and will bring issues of transformation to your desires and your life. Hmm. We belong to the greater Adam. Adam. The second contrast, though, is not only of degree, but of consequence. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This is a great verse. I love this verse. I, love, I marinated in this verse this week. I'm, that's why I'm so happy today. Can I get an amen? Just marinated, just kind of relished in this verse. Because here's what this verse tells me God said, Okay, here's the plan. I'm going to allow this sin to happen as a part of my sovereign plan. Adam brought death and ruin and sin and all the cemeteries of the world. And so God said, I have a plan to redeem humanity. But not only am I going to pay the price for that one trespass, not only am I going to pay the price for that one original sin, but I'm going to send my son to pay for the original sin and all of the subsequent trespasses that happen that have accumulated over time in all of my life. My son is going to pay for Adam's sin and all of Adam's children's sin and our sin and everybody's sin. All of the iniquities of God's people will be taken care of. So whereas Adam... Through one trespass brought condemnation, God more than provided not only for Adam's sin, but all of our sins as well. And can I look? Jesus Christ, when he paid the price on the cross, that was not a down payment. Can I get an amen? That was not a down payment. It's not like Jesus is like, you know, I'm going to pay for part of the original sin. And then you get to have the full life to kind of pay it back through your service and through tithing and through all these things that you get to do. And hopefully, you'll be able to pay off the balance of the loan or at least pay me back. Here's the truth. Jesus paid the full price of everything that we owe to God. The debt has been paid, making Jesus the greater Adam in consequence. Some of you, you've gone to Dave Ramsey class. How many of y'all been to Dave Ramsey before? Financial Peace University, right? Debt is dumb. Hallelujah, amen. I know that some of you are probably working on trying to get rid of credit card debt. Maybe some of you have already accomplished that. Maybe you've gotten rid of all your debt and you've called Dave Ramsey up and you've done the no debt yell on, on the phone. Have y'all heard people do that, Right and how great it is, and I can tell you from personal experience that when you finally get rid of credit card debt after a lot of work and eating ramen noodles, you do scream, don't you? You're like, yes, we have no credit card debt, and you're so happy. And even if the next day goes bad, you can say, yeah, but I got no credit card debt. You know what I'm saying? And even if somebody doesn't like you one day, you're like, well, you might not like me, but I got no credit card debt. You know what I mean? If your day goes bad, your circumstances go bad, you can call each other up. You know, you call your wife up on the phone and say, Cherry, baby, it's going really bad right now because my mic is popping, but I got no debt. <laughs> imagine, now listen to me, imagine having no debt with God. Having no debt. That Jesus really did pay the, pay the full price for every trespass in your life, past, present, and future, and think about that debt that you owed. If you pulled out that filing cabinet and it listed every sinful thought or attitude or action in your life. And it was laid before, before God. And you looked at it and it was an accumulation of a debt so great. And imagine if your heart could fully embrace. I mean really embrace. This is what Paul's wanting us to do. Really embrace. The debt is paid by the new Adam. It's done. And when Satan comes and tells you that you are no longer right with God, he is lying to you. The accuser accuses us day and night, but we have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. And what is the word of my testimony? I belong to Jesus. I belong to the new Adam who's done it right. I have transferred my membership from the old Adam in that stupid garden, and I've gone into the wilderness with with the new Adam who's overcome temptation, who's taken my sin, who's paid the price. It's done. And Satan and people and life and circumstances cannot preach to me another message. It cannot. I'm right with God. And that means when things don't go right, I can say that's all right. I'm right with God. And if I get sick, I can say that's all right. I'm right with God. And if people don't like me or criticize me or whatever, it's not the end of the world because I'm right with God. And if my if my car doesn't work one day, that's okay. I'm right with God. You see, my debt has been paid. That's what Paul is saying. It's so pastoral. It's so wonderful. This contrast of consequence continues in verse 17. He goes on to say, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive... Boy, that's important, by the way. The only way you get the new Adam is you got to receive him. This is not an automatic transferal. This is a surrendering to. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift... Of righteousness, reign, and life through the one man Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is very simple, really simple. Saying, Look, man, Adam messed it all up and we die. Congratulations. There's your world of cemeteries. There it is. You die. Jesus comes, pays the full price, gives us justification, but he gives us so much more. In justification, he gives us the rain. Everybody say rain. The reign of life, whereas death reigned and it was one-dimensional, and we just die. We're just dead. And yet, here's the reign of life that is multidimensional in its implication. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full more abundantly. The reign of life that we might begin to walk more and more in the beauty and the overflow of a life and a relationship with God. That our relationship with God would not just be defined by a forensic thing that's happened, justification, as important as that. It is but that the, the but that our life with God would be a reign, would be a walk, would be a relationship. Paul, Paul goes on to say, I love uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 17, which I have a slide for it, but it talks about the reign of a kingdom, and he says that the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. It's joy. Did you know that God wants you to be joyful? God wants you you to take pleasure in what he's giving to you. God wants you to enjoy him. In fact, God is glorified when we enjoy him because it's the reign of life. It's the abundance of life. And how wonderful, how much better is this Adam than the original Adam in terms of this multidimensional, incredible life? Beloved... We are being invited to dance on our graves to dance on the grave of our old life and our past, to dance on the grave of being separated from God, to dance on that grave. And where Adam put us in that grave, Jesus has raised us from the dead. And we are invited to dance. And every time we get together on Sunday morning and we open this book and we study it seriously, we are dancing on the grave. And every time we sing these songs that we sing together, we're dancing on our grave. Every time we pray to God, you are dancing on your grave when you pray to God, when you talk to him in the bathroom, in the car, driving down the road, in your cubicle at work, on the farmland, in your pastoral office. It's actually a principal's office in the education building. You know what I'm saying? It's really sweet. You know what I mean? And you're, I'm in the principal's office, and I'm talking to God, and I'm talking to God, and I'm dancing on my grave. Because Jesus, the greater Adam, has given me an inheritance of life and not death, of talking to God and not being silent with God. And may I not waste this opportunity but receive everything. That Jesus has earned for me. Man, dance on that grave. You're not dead. You're alive. And every time I sin. When I start getting stuck on stupid again. You know what I'm doing? I'm living a lie. Because I'm no longer being who I am in Christ. I'm not being what Jesus made me to be. And I'm not walking in the identity he's earned for me. You see... Let us confess that we belong not only to the new Adam, but the greater Adam. Here's point number three. Not only the greater Adam, but let us confess that we belong to the obedient Adam. This really might be, theologically and by implication, the two most important verses in this text. Because he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, watch this carefully now. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In verse 18, I see two acts. Or two trees. The first tree is the forbidden tree that Adam was not supposed to take of. And yet, despite that command, one trespass represents him taking from that tree and doing what God told him not to do, leading to condemnation for all people. But then I see the second tree. The Bible says, curses is the man who hangs on the tree. And it says here that so one act of righteousness... Of course, what would that be? That would be the passive righteousness of Jesus when he took our penalty on the cross. That one act on that tree brought justification in life for all people. Now, the real implication then is the follow-up in verse 19 where I see what scholars call imputation or double imputation. Because it says here in verse 19, For as by one man's obedience, the many were made sinners. Everybody say made. What that means is credited or imputed or considered sinners. Adam's guilt, as we talked about before, was imputed to him. His sin was all of our sin. That one one moment, man. And yet... The double imputation comes in that second imputation in the second clause. He says, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And what that's saying is, is that Jesus' obedience is credited to our account. We are accountable before God for what Jesus has done when we've placed our faith and surrendered to Jesus Christ. You're like, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Security, assurance. What that means, beloved, is that your assurance and your security never came down to what you do. It never did. It never did. Your eternal destiny comes down to one act of one person, and it's either Adam or it's Jesus. That's it. Paul is saying, you have been imputed with Adam's sin if you are still outside of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then his obedience is your obedience. So we belong to the obedient Adam even when we couldn't be obedient ourselves. Even when we couldn't obey God's demands or his laws. This secures our salvation. Now, I want to show you just really quick. I didn't do this in the first service, which might be why I went short. Hmm. But look at verse 19 in that last cause. He says... So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus dying on the cross, the many will be made righteous. See how it's future tense? It's like, you will be made righteous. Now, we know what that doesn't mean. We know that that doesn't mean that he's saying that you will become more moral or... Some kind of righteousness is going to be infused and you're going to start becoming righteous in Jesus Christ or anything like that. Because in this context, righteousness is a forensic word that means simply you are declared right with God. So why would Paul put it in the future tense? And I'll tell you why. And this is so important. This is a seed of mission that Paul is putting in here because Paul's not writing a theological treatise. He's not writing an evangelistic tract. You know what he's writing? A missionary letter. He's trying to recruit Romans, Roman Christians to get fired up about mission. And he's saying, listen, God is all the time by grace as the gospel is being proclaimed. God is constantly saving people and transferring them from the old Adam to the new Adam. And that is not going to stop. New people are not going to stop becoming Christians until Jesus comes back. God has prepared people to receive Jesus Christ and receive this righteousness and so we can't put a, a past tense on that we got to put a future tense and beloved can I just tell you if this is what you believe if you've received the blessing of Jesus's righteousness in your place that is not something that should stop with us that is something that should spread through us when you belong to the obedient Adam you and I have an obligation together to share that message with the world we want to make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. Why? Because when Jesus died, he deserves us to proclaim to as many people as possible the gospel that he's the new Adam. And what, what stunning universal implications this passage has. Paul is literally looking at all of humanity, every tribe, every nation, every language. And he's saying every human being is either in one Adam or another. There's no, other op- There's no third option. Either people are in the old Adam and they're, they're destined for condemnation, or they're in the new Adam and they're destined for eternal life. It's one or the other. We belong to the obedient Adam. Finally, let us confess that we belong to the royal Adam, the king of kings. Look at how he closes in verses 20 and 21. He says, now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you can almost hear the objections. People are saying, what's the, but the law is supposed to save people. But the law, but God gave Mosaic Ten Commandments, all that. Isn't that supposed to save people? And Paul is saying that the law could never save people. The only thing the law can do in one way or the other is increase sin. And in what way? Well, in a lot of different ways, but in this context, what he's saying is, is that soon as the law came through Moses, we just, we just, we just said, whoop, oh yeah, oh, there's a law. God just set a boundary in the Ten Commandments, and we went leaping over, and we trespassed that boundary, and the moment you and I trespassed that boundary, we increased sins. We increased the sin in the world. We automatically increased and multiplied Adam's original sin. That's what happened, that's what the law does. The law is kind of a CAT scan that reveals cancer, or an x-ray that reveals that something's gone wrong, wrong with the bones, or it's, it's diagnostic. It's never medicinal. It, it shows us and reveals to us how far we've fallen from God, and so it increases our understanding. It increases our sin because we always trespass against the law, and the law was never meant to save people. It was always by grace that God's people have been saved, Old Testament or new. But he says that even though we increase the trespass through the law, yet where sin increased, great grace abounded all the more. That grace covers all of that because Jesus' work is more than enough to cover the increase of sin. And so he makes the promise in verse 21, the ultimate security verse. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is interested in eternity being a gigantic spotlight, turning back onto our present life, and being an influence as we walk through this world. I have eternal life. And that perspective, that future assurance, that the assurance of hope, faith is the hope of things assured. You see... As, as that spotlight shines down on my path and on my present life, I'm able to more stably walk with God because I have eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is secure. Now, there's some things that you can do with this belonging to the new Adam. The first thing is admit you can't do it. You never could. You never could perform what you needed to perform for God to be right with God. You never could. You were born stuck in Adam and his failure and his ruin. You belong to him. You're identified with him if you haven't believed in Jesus. The only thing for you to admit is I can't do it and to surrender to Jesus and to say, I surrender to you. I'm going to believe in you. You are my hope for eternal life, and I'm going to let your life reign and my identity in you determine my life. My security with God has nothing to do with what other people say or what I can achieve. It's all about what Jesus has done, and I belong to him. The other thing is just to be praying. How can I represent this message? This is a life-saving message for the nations of the world. This message needs to be proclaimed. People need to be regularly invited to this message of Jesus Christ. Let us leave the old Adam, believe in the new Adam, and regularly confess this new Adam and dance on the graves of our old lives. Let us pray.